Well, we're continuing our series on focus, and I'm talking today about the transforming gospel. I'd like to begin by sharing a study. Uh, came out eight years ago. David Kinneman released a study in a book called UnChristian. The subtitle of this book is What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. It was some of the latest research completed of 16 to 29-year-olds and their perceptions of the church. At the time, I want to share with you three big findings from this study. Number one, two out of every five young outsiders, it was 38%, claimed to have a bad impression of present-day Christianity. In addition, one-third said Christianity represents a negative image with which they would not want to be associated. And how about this? 49% considered it, 49% considered it a bad thing to be considered an evangelical Christian. Now, if anything, over the past eight years, those numbers have actually trended worse. The most dominant association with the term evangelical is a political activist. And that makes me sad, because the basis of the term evangelical is actually a wonderful Greek word, euangelion. It's the Greek word for the gospel. It's the word that's used in the New Testament to describe the good news. Evangelicals are supposed to be all about the gospel, experiencing it, living it, giving it away to other people, but somewhere along the line, something shifted. We're now better known for our judgments, for our partisan political stands, and what we oppose. Because of this, these negative associations, one out of every 10 young adults in this country say that only one in 10, or fewer than one in 10, say that faith is their highest priority in life. So get this, as a result of these neg negative perceptions of the church, Faith is now the lowest priority in the next generation than it has ever been. In truth, many young adults feel minimized and some demonized by those who claim to love Jesus. Churches have become famous for what they're against as opposed to what they're for. Bottom line, the church is no longer viewed as a force for good in the world. And that's just sad, not because our reputation has suffered, but because of the truth behind that accusation. You see, let's face it, many churches, I mean the majority of churches in America really are no longer a force for good in their community. The average church in America gives one to three percent of their budget away every year. That's the average church. Ninety-nine percent to about ninety-seven percent stays within the walls of the church. Statistics don't lie. How a church spends its money is a far better barometer of what it truly values than anything that comes out of their mouth. Sadly, the church in America is really known for being self-centered, and we have earned this reputation. So a few weeks back, I came across a new study by Kinneman, just released this year. It's published in a book called Good Faith. In some ways, good faith is a correction for those who seem to have misinterpreted the data in UnChristian. You see, there were some people who read that book and erroneously concluded that the problem with the church was in having strong beliefs or convictions. They concluded that we've alienated others by our beliefs, so therefore it's better to just have watered-down beliefs rather than a hard-won piece. The authors concluded, and they said this, today the mushy middle seems to be winning. So what this new study has suggested is the problem is not in having convictions about what is true or right or real. The problem is, is when that's all you've got. Standing up for truth is never a bad thing. Standing for the truth without love is always a bad thing. According to the authors of Good Faith, 
there's three things, three essentials that the next generation needs to see in the church. And I think these are wonderful. Number one, how well you love. Two, what you believe. And three, how you live. I believe that's a good recipe for gospel living. How well you love, what you believe, and how you live. So let's talk about them each for a minute. The test of love, how you really love, is not how you love people who are most like you. It's not how you love your family. It's not how you love your best friends. The real test of love, how well we love, is determined by how we love the unlovable. Those people who are spiritual sandpaper to you. Those who don't share your political beliefs. The people who've let you down sometimes hurt you. The people who have nothing to offer you in return. And young people who may not agree with how you view truth or life. How do you love people like that? You see, one of the evidences that we have been with God is we love the people God loves. And who does God love? Everybody. God loves everybody, including the jerk at work. God loves that person too. And God loves the person who fills their Facebook feed with nothing but Fox News and the person over here that fills it with nothing but MSNBC. God loves all ends of the political spectrum. Even though you may not, God does. God loves people who hold to truths that you find to be a contradiction to everything you believe. God is passionately, irrationally, and totally in love with the people you don't like. So our prayer as believers is constantly, God, help me to see these people the way you see them so that I might love them the way you love them. Our challenge is to love everybody, to love the unlovable. That's the proof of love. Another thing, our beliefs matter too. Now, one of the things I hate about this time of the year, election season, is people try to pigeonhole Christians that we only care about two or three things, like abortion and marriage and family and prayer and school. Yeah, a lot of Christians believe passionately about those things, but my beliefs are way bigger than that, even politically speaking. Like, I believe in the inherent dignity of every single human being. And I believe that God cares passionately for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. That's the most common sociological grouping in the Bible. God takes their side because nobody else does. And I believe with all of my heart that if a nation wants to be considered righteous in the eyes of God, it matters how they treat the poor. My beliefs and my values are way broader than a few hot-button topics. And ultimately, the way we demonstrate our gospel is not just in how we love and in what we believe, but more importantly, how that affects the way we live. Because how I love and what I believe ought to change the way I live. It ought to make different priorities. As a result of being a believer, my money, my resources of time and energy, all of the things that God has gifted me with, my abilities, my talents, are not used exclusively for me anymore. Instead, they also flow out to other people because it's not all about me, and the gospel changed my life in that way. One of the things I love about being your pastor is that anybody who knows this church knows that our neighbors matter to us, both here and abroad. Our city calls on us when they need help. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in this community and I've spoken to a city leader or a community leader or some business leader or even just a community member, and I usually get one of two things said about Spring Creek. They'll either say, hey, you're that church that does all the good stuff in Africa, or they say, you're the church that believes in helping the community. It's one thing for you all to know that. It's another thing when the community sets up and takes notice. When people outside the church know that's the reputation of this church. And that leads to this issue I want to address right up front. The gospel is bigger than I thought it was. Now if I ask you this morning, what is the gospel? 
How would you answer that question? You see, when I was growing up, no one asked the question, what is the gospel? Because we knew, or we thought we knew, what the gospel was. We would say the gospel is how you get saved. The gospel is how you get your ticket stamped for heaven. But you know, is that really all there is to the gospel? I mean, I most definitely agree it's a part of the gospel. It's a very important part. Christ died to save sinners. But there's a whole lot more to the gospel than just the salvation of individuals. Other people, when you ask them what's the gospel, they'll say, what's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And they'll quote scripture to prove it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, let me share it with you. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise, you might have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now what Paul's doing here is referring to the core of his teaching. He's talking about the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there's no question, that's the price that was paid to redeem the world. The good news is the cross, at the cross, God began a process that has at its heart the transformation of the entire world. In other words, God took care of our sin problem. He paid our debts in full. That means not only is forgiveness possible, but a new beginning is possible, a new direction is possible. Everything's been made new. The mistake we made is only applying that to individuals. Because see, this is not what Jesus taught. Look at what Jesus taught. He said Jesus went through, he says Jesus went through Galilee teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news, the gospel of the what? Of the kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus almost exclusively says the gospel of the kingdom. He never just says the gospel, I'm preaching the gospel. He says, I'm here to preach the good news of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom sounds a lot bigger than just a collection of individuals, doesn't it? I mean, this is something big. In fact, let me share this with you so you can study this on your own this afternoon. This is on the message notes online. It's also in the app. You can find this. The term kingdom of God occurs four times in Matthew. Those are the references. 14 times in Mark. 32 times in Luke. Twice in the Gospel of John. Six times in the book of Acts. Eight times in the writing of Paul. Once in Revelation. Now, Matthew prefers to use the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, and he uses that 32 times. He only uses kingdom of God four times. At those times, he was directly quoting Jesus. It's clear that the two expressions, though, mean the same thing. What you have to remember is this. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and Jewish people, as a general rule, don't like to use the name of God. They don't like to use it because they don't want to ever misuse it or abuse it, so they avoid using it altogether. Many times they even substitute the word Lord as opposed to Yahweh as opposed to God. So in Matthew's gospel, if he had said some 30 with a, 36 times kingdom of God, it would have been very jarring to a Jewish person. They wouldn't have understood that. So Matthew reserves the times when he's quoting Jesus about the kingdom of God that he actually says kingdom of God. The rest of the time he uses kingdom of heaven so that the Jewish people can better assimilate what he's actually saying. So what is the kingdom then? If the good news is the kingdom, what's the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is about God's will and God's way in all of life permeating a society, refashioning it into what it was meant to be. What I'm telling you is the story that God is telling through time is he's going to set right everything that's been damaged in the world. I mean, think about it. Is it just individuals that were tainted or damaged by sin? 
Or has that infection spread? Does sin just affect me? Or does it affect everything I've been involved in? Is it just individuals or have we institutionalized some sins in unjust laws and unfair business practices? Can you see the effect of sin in your family? In your neighborhood? Your city? Businesses? How about Washington, D.C.? Can anybody here see sin in Washington, D.C.? So here's my question. Does Jesus only want to redeem people inside a broken system and leave the broken system intact? Or does he want to redeem it all? Is God content with godless policies and laws? Is God okay with predatory businesses that add no value to society but instead only prey off of desperate people? You know, a lot of Christians do believe that our laws ought to reflect the heart of God, and they champion this thing about the unborn. And I totally agree with that. So they champion laws to do just that. But I would say that as a society, God would have us care about those children once they're born too, especially into poverty and squalor. I mean, we cannot call ourselves we cannot call ourselves pro-life when we're only pro-birth. We are pro-life, which means we're pro-life from womb to tomb. We're for those children, even when they're born into poverty, and we want our laws to reflect that as well. So here's the deal. If we get something as foundational as the gospel wrong, if we only define the gospel in terms of what God is doing for me, the more out of sync we're going to be with God's purposes. The truth is some churches preach a small gospel, the one that's only concerned about personal salvation, but the world, the corruption, the unfairness, the hungry, the poor, well, who cares about them because I already got my ticket stamped. This is why, by and large, the vast majority of churches are focused exclusively on what's going on within their four walls. They, they form little holiness clubs or social clubs that's all about catering to its membership. This is the direct result of believing in a small gospel. But the New Testament teaches a big gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. The early church believed that they were the beachhead of what God was doing in this world, living and relating in a broken world. They believed a new society was being formed in the church called the kingdom of God. We were overturning the injustices and the exclusions of the empire in order to build a more inclusive family called the church. In the early church, people who were in extreme poverty were being helped out of extreme poverty. People who were sick were being cared for and not just thrown away. The exploited, those treated unjustly, they found a champion in the church because the church believed in a big a gospel, a gospel that made the whole world better. Now, we know how Jesus taught us to pray. You know this. Many of you memorized it. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jewish writers love parallelism. Parallelism is where you say one thing and then you say it again in another line where it somehow defines or amplifies what you just said. So when Jesus tells us to pray for his kingdom to come, the next phrase, your will be done, defines what that means. The kingdom of God is a society on earth where God's will is done. So we're praying for God's will to come, not just in our individual lives, but in our family, in our neighborhood in our city, in business, in government, in D.C. So let's explore this big, beautiful gospel. There's this one word, and I've always been captivated by it. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of the kingdom that exists in Old and New Testament. It's a word picture of the gospel. Here's a verse that has it in it. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. Now that word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. You've heard that word before, shalom. It's a typical Jewish greeting. 
Now, we translate it as peace, but that's shorthand. That's a truncated definition because shalom itself is rooted in the creation of God. So let me explain. The concept behind shalom is the design of God. When God created the universe, he didn't create our planet like a tossed salad where he made all the different elements, kind of threw them together and mixed them up. No, not at all. When God created the world, there was purpose, intentionality, and harmony. He created a world that was intricately interwoven. In fact, in the Psalms, the Bible used this imagery and describes creation like a piece of fabric. So let me ask you this question. What distinguishes a piece of fabric from a pile of threads? What makes fabric fabric is the threads are interwoven with one another. With a piece of cloth, it's woven together. There are literally thousands upon thousands of interdependencies. Each thread touches hundreds of other threads over and under, over and under. They're not just lying there in a pile. It's not a hodgepodge of threads. In fact, the more interwoven they are, the stronger the fabric. The Bible says that's exactly the way God made the world. That's how we were made. It's how we were meant to be. All the entities of the world, God, creation, the animals, humanity, all these entities were webbed together in this beautiful, harmonious, interdependent relationship. And the Bible word for that beautiful, harmonious, interdependent relationship is shalom. But shalom's even bigger than that. It's also telling us how peace is achieved. Peace happens when all the parts of creation work the way God meant them to work, not independently of one another, but interdependently. Now, that's shalom. But herein lies our problem. We rebelled against God's creative intention, didn't we? We decided we didn't want to be interdependent. We wanted to be independent. And we declared, our first, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, declared their independence from God. And that, my friends is at the heart of every single problem in society. We have declared our independence from our creator and from one another. We live in our individualism, and that is not good because it moves against the very nature of creation. Cornelius Plantinga is a world-renowned theologian, wrote a great book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I think he offered the best definition of shalom I've ever heard. Listen to this. The webbing together of God, humans, all creation in equity, Fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We translate it peace, but it means a lot more than that. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed all underneath the ark of God's love. Shalom is another way of saying this world as it ought to be. No more sickness, no more hungry babies, no death, no homelessness, no war, no oppression, no injustice. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. It's the new Canaan. That's the idea that undergirds shalom. But that means when I say to you shalom, I'm not saying peace out, okay? I'm, I'm saying that I want all these wonderful, glorious, harmonious interdependencies to be true in your life. Now, some will object and they'll say, well, this world is anything but paradise, and I agree with you. And so they say, how do you live out shalom in a world that's messed up like ours is? I love, love the way Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City described this. Listen, 
He said to do justice in the context of biblical shalom means to go to the place where the fabric is broken, where the weaker members of society are falling through. They're just falling through. And then take the threads of your life, your emotions, your time, your body, your presence, your stuff, your resources, your money, and then just plunge it. Plunge it into the lives of other people through thousands and thousands of involvements. Friends, that's our job as believers. That's what it means to live the gospel. To do justice in the context of biblical shalom means to take the gifts and talents God has given you to help repair and reweave shalom. Because what the Bible would tell us is that the fabric of society is torn. And we're repairing the breaches in that fabric. We're using the threads of our life to repair it. Because you see, people that matter to God are falling through those holes. People who matter to God are suffering because the fabric of shalom has been torn. So we do as a church, we go to the forgotten ones in extended care facilities to remind them that they're not forgotten. We're the people that are on the front lines of hunger in our city by partnering with great organizations like Good Sam's of Garland and going to Mercy House to minister to the homeless to say, you're not forgotten, you belong, you matter to us. We are the people, like this weekend, our young people led us in this courageous effort. They, they walked nine miles, 18,000 steps, to raise awareness and to raise resources for a people that many of them will never meet. But they know in Badagri, Nigeria, the fabric has been torn. And because of that, people who are blind, blind by cataracts, blinded by a surgery that's commonplace here in America, but very uncommon there, that if they build this one little medical clinic out of an old storage container, that it will give people who've not seen in years the ability to see again and also be seen by society again. That's repairing the fabric that's torn. And that's what we do as people. That means my job, your job, is to discover our gifts that God has given us and get busy reweaving the fabric. Now, my job's not your job. And that means that God has wired you in ways that are distinctly different from mine. Many of you have gifts, and you're unaware of those gifts, and you're unaware of those gifts largely because you haven't done the first right thing, and that is to see the need that's in society and try to meet it in some way. That's how you discover your gifting. You get out there, you find a need, you try to meet it. So some of you in this room, you know, you need greater involvement. Maybe in your AA group, you need to become a sponsor. You've been a sponsee. You've been helped in this program. You knew what it was like to walk into a meeting, white-knuckling it because you only had 24 hours of sobriety. And somebody cared about you, and somebody took you under their wing, and they were a mentor to you. You need to do that for other people. There are other people in this room that, you know what, through, through, through the schools locally or through Next Gen Ministry here, you need to be the adult friend to some of these teenagers that you wish you had as a teenager. Others of you in this room, you know, there are people that, that we have in this, in this church that are elderly, people who are on fixed incomes, people on public assistance, people who are single moms, and something goes wrong in their house and they have no idea how to fix it. And you know what? You know how to fix stuff. And that's a gift. Believe me, I know it's a gift because I don't have it at all. I mean, because <laughs> I go to fix something in my house, then I have to call a professional to come refix whatever I fixed. It's an amazing gift, but you know what? Because God has given you that gift, and you don't think of it as a gift because you just do it so naturally, if you would begin to do that, but do it to help literally repair and reweave the torn fabric of society to take care of people, 
That's our job. So shalom is that everything in creation is hungering for redemption. We're called to go find the places where people are slipping through those tears, where the edge of the fabric is, is frayed and people are frazzled to let them know they matter to God and to speak to a real need in their life. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And by the way, friends, it doesn't take much to do that. At the age of 38, Mother Teresa went to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. You know what she had? She had a stick. That's what she had. And what she did is she began to write on the ground, on the dirt of the ground, the alphabet to teach poor children who were cast away how to read and how to write. She started where she was with what she had. People started noticing what she was doing. They gave her a little bit of money. They gave her some soap. She introduced soap to these little orphan children. Many of them had never taken a bath, didn't know how to care for themselves. And she taught them how to care for themselves. She taught them about the love of God. Other women noticed her work and joined in with them. As a result, they began to live together in poverty like the people they were ministering to. They would rescue abandoned children that were dumped in trash bins. And they would care for them and raise them up. Mother Teresa kept this vast collection of photos of children who had been adopted all around the world whom they had rescued out of trash bins. Not just that, because she lived in this very simple life, it's literally said that she could pick up everything she owned, pack it up, and move in 10 minutes' time. This is a woman, because she was recognized and given so many awards and so much money, this money just came into her life and it flowed right back out. She built in India what's called, um, oh gosh, what's the name of that? The Town of Peace. And the Town of Peace was a, a place that was built where lepers would be treated they would be taught a life skill and where they could flourish, they could have a normal life. Because of all these awards that came in and all this money, she began to just do more and more things for God. In 1979, she flew from Calcutta, India to Oslo, Norway to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, for those of you that don't know, typically when you're given that honor, there's a big banquet that's also given in your honor. And Mother Teresa begged, don't, don't do the banquet, give me the money instead. And so they saved the $7,000 that would have been spent on a banquet and gave her that with the $190,000 that accompanied the Nobel Peace Prize. She went home and she spent it on housing for the poor and for the lepers. As a result, that year she opened 14 centers outside of India. She had over 100 centers in operation with 7,000 people a day being fed in Calcutta alone. Now I want you to hear this wonderful woman's kingdom philosophy. Listen to this. I cannot alleviate poverty, but I can feed one hungry person. I cannot end war, but I can extend a branch of peace to my neighbor. I cannot prevent death, but I can hold the hand of a dying man. That may not seem like much, but it is far harder than to devise schemes for social betterment, and it is everything. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one, one, one. So I begin. I begin. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up the next 42,000. The whole world is only a drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family. Same thing in the church where you go. Just begin. One, one, one. What she's talking about is shalom. She's talking about repairing the torn fabric of society. 
plunging the threads of her life into the involvement of lives of others, one person at a time. She lived her gospel. And this world and our young people are dying for a fresh expression of God's love that puts the gospel into shoe leather and leads a life that's worth imitating. Something else you should know, the early church believed and lived the big gospel. They did. Church history bears this out. I mean, just think about the rise of Christianity. People weren't drawn to Christians because of evangelistic outreaches or crusades or mass media. None of that stuff existed back then. The church grew because Christians had a gospel that they believed was for the whole world and had a community called the church where people were living out that gospel. During the plagues that swept in history through Rome in the second century, I don't know if you're aware of this fact or not, but all the doctors fled the country. Can you imagine that? In a time of rampant disease, plague is killing everybody, the doctors left. The Christians stayed and took care of the sick. While others were running from the problems, thinking only of themselves, Christians ran into the cities thinking only of others. Dionysius is a judge. He lived in the first century in Athens. He made some observations about what was going on in society, especially among the pagans. Listen to this from history. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, read family there. They fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. You know, before Jesus Christ, the Roman Empire had hospitals, but they were only for gladiators and soldiers and slaves. In other words, if you served a utilitarian purpose to Rome and you got sick, they might work to get you fixed up. But if you were the average person or you were poor, no such medical uh, place existed for you. In fact, there's a professor of philosophy at Westmont College made this observation. I had to write it down. He said, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for the practical welfare of the lonely, Schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. It's the followers of Jesus Christ that changed the face of compassion in the world. Now, I'm not saying that compassion would not have existed without Jesus, but there is literally no other movement and no other religion in society that has done what Christ followers have done in this arena, and it's just a fact. I mean, think about even today. Think of all the names of the hospitals that still betray their Christian origin. Presbyterian, St. Paul, Baylor Baptist, St. Jude's, Methodist. In China, before the year 1935, still the majority of the hospitals in that country were run exclusively by Christians. Today we take for granted that people have always helped people throughout all time. And history shows that's not the case. In fact, the renowned historian Dr. James Montenot said that after searching through the historical documents of antiquity, that it's left no trace of any organized charitable effort apart from Christianity. That's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, if you ask yourself today, when tragedy strikes around the world, who are the first responders? Here's a list. The Salvation Army, Compassion International, the Christian Children's Relief Fund, the Red Cross, World Vision. You know what all those organizations have in common? They were all started by Christians. Henry Dunant was a believer. He's the founder of the Red Cross. He was also the recipient of the very first Nobel Peace Prize. 
St. Augustine said it like this. He said, what does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That's what love looks like. So in light of all that, this calling to live our big gospel, what is the church? There's a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas. Never met the man, but I love what he said. What is the church? A community of people who present living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Is that what we are? This is a world, when they look at Spring Creek Church, see evidence of a loving God. We're supposed to live out our gospel. And that means a lot more than just pointing out the things that are wrong in society. It means rolling up our sleeves and being a part of the solution. Because we're the alternative to the empire. We're the life-giving alternative. We're the beachhead of the kingdom of God. We're the ones that believe that everybody matters, that we're going to make a difference, that people need to be loved because simply they're loved by God. So I had a phrase I shared with you last week. I hope that today as I read it again at the end of this message, it makes even more sense. We're called to be a gospel people, proclaiming and living a gospel message in a gospel-famished world. That's the church. So the last time I shared this story I want to wrap up with was five years ago. But it's just so powerful, so illustrative of what the kingdom of God is like that I want to wrap up with it today. It's about Tony Campalo. Tony Campalo was a, or is a sociologist, taught at Eastern University for many years, well-known Christian speaker and advocate for the poor. And one time he was asked to speak in Honolulu. Now he's from Philly, so the time difference between Philly and Honolulu, he found himself wide awake at 3 a.m. So he decides to go ahead and get up out of his hotel room, gets dressed, goes out and he finds a little diner and he sits down at the counter and orders a cup of coffee. Not long after he takes his seat, about eight or nine very boisterous prostitutes come walking into the diner and have a seat right beside Tony. And when that happens, one of the women, the woman who was seated right next to him, said to the other women, tomorrow's my birthday, I'll be 39. And her friend looks at her and says, so what do you want from me? You want me to throw you a party or bake you a cake? And the woman said, why do you have to be so mean? I don't want anything from you. I didn't ask you for anything. I've never had a party, never had a birthday cake. Why would I want something from you? Just be quiet. Well, not long after that, the ladies left. And only Tony and the diner owner, dining owner was still there. So Tony looked at the owner and said, do they come in here every night? He said, yes, they do. And Tony said, this one next to me, he said, you mean Agnes? He said, yeah, that one. Does she come in every night? He said, yeah, at 3 o'clock in the morning, like clockwork, she's always here. And Tony said, what if we throw her a birthday party tomorrow night? And the diner owner just breaks out in this big grin. He calls his wife, who's back in the kitchen. She's the cook. And he said, hey, this crazy guy out here wants to give Agnes a birthday party tomorrow. And so they all agreed, and they made plans to have the party. Next night, Tony comes back real early in the morning, same deal. The place is decorated with crepe paper. There's even a big banner that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Pretty soon, all sorts of people begin to trickle in. I mean, it's, it's like it's a full diner because evidently word had gotten out in the street. And all the prostitutes of Honolulu are packed into this tiny diner right now. <laughs> and about that time, Agnes and her friend come walking through the door and everybody yells, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And her knees buckle and her friends caught her. She's stunned. She's speechless. They let her over to the counter. She has a seat. Everyone sings happy birthday to her. Next thing you know, the diner comes out with this big cake, candles all over it, puts it down in front of her and says, blow out the candles. And she sits there just absolutely stunned, mouth agape, 
tears streaming down her face. She blows out the candle. And then he says, well, here's a knife. You can cut it so everybody can have a slice. And she says, do I have to? <laughs> and he said, well, no, I guess you don't have to. And she said, I just, I just want to sit here for a minute. And then she said something really strange. She said, I'd like to keep it for a while. I don't live far from here. Can I take it home? I'll be right back. And everybody just looked at her with these puzzled looks. And the owner said, sure, you can take it. And Agnes reached down and she picked up that cake and cradled it like she was carrying the Holy Grail. And she turned and she walked out the door to her apartment. And of course, all the people in the diner, they're just kind of stunned thinking, what do we do now, right? You know, the, 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 the invited guest is gone. And Tony says, what do you say we pray? Now, this is about as a bizarre a scene as you could imagine. I mean, here is this highly respected, well-known Christian sociologist surrounded by every prostitute in Honolulu in a greasy diner in the middle of the night, and he said, let's, let's pray. So he does. And Tony prays for the woman that somehow she would come to know the love of Jesus Christ, that God would heal whatever is broken in her soul, and that God would be very good to her on her birthday. And then he said, Amen. And as soon as he says amen, the owner looks at Tony and said, hey, I didn't know you were a preacher. And Tony said, I'm not a preacher, I'm a sociologist. And the owner said, well, what kind of church do you come from anyway? And you got to know Tony. Tony breaks out in this ear-to-ear -ear grin. And he said, I guess I come from the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and the owner said, no, you don't. There's no such church like that. If there was, I'd join it. People are hungry for a fresh expression of God's love that takes their breath away. Let's be that church. And let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've left us a really big gospel. A gospel bigger than me, myself, and I. A gospel bigger than my needs. A gospel that does more than just assure that I have a home in heaven when I die. A gospel that was intended to be a remedy for a very broken world. A gospel that allows us to take all these wonderful gifts that you've given in our life, all these resources of our time and our treasure, even the things that you've entrusted to our care, and even just a stick to make a difference in the life of other people, that God, we use those and we plunge the resources of our life, thousands of threads, into hundreds of people just wanting to make sure that the the fabric of society where it is torn, where shalom is fractured, that we repair that, that we reweave that so that people who matter to you know they matter to us and know that they matter to you too. I pray, God, that you would have your way in this church, that God, more than anything, that people, when they look at Spring Creek Church, when they look at the family that's gathered here today, that they would know that this is a church that exists beyond itself, that we believe that we're here to make a difference. God, help us to do that, each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen.